Is everyone here? Please put up your hand if you're absent. <laughs> so this uh, second um, seminar is going to look at uh, Nama Rupa and uh, consciousness, though primarily Nama Rupa. Um, the topic of self will be dealt with tomorrow and in the following days. But let's just uh, recap. <clears throat> uh, yesterday we looked at um, what I considered by uh, a number of synonyms. Experience. What the Buddha calls the all. Which actually reminded me of a, an expression Don Cupid, the Anglican theologian, uses. Um, it all. What is the meaning of it all? It all. Which for Cupid has come to mean pretty much what has replaced the idea of God for many people. <coughs> the meaning of it all. It all. We also saw that this word is broadly equivalent to the term loka which translates as world, or as we saw the Buddha describing it, as what passes, what happens, what goes on. I suggested also that it seems broadly equivalent to the expression we use very much today, life. Not life as, as purely a biological process, but life has again become a term that applies to everything. What is the meaning of life? And we also noted that this is broadly the same as is understood in this familiar Buddhist idea of the five aggregates, which I prefer to translate as the five bundles. But we'll come back to that. In the Western tradition, particularly in the last century, um, in the <clears throat> some of the thinkers within the phenomenological schools also tried to find a language to uh, capture this sense of the uh, totality of it all. And uh, Martin Heidegger very famously coined the expression in der Weltsein, being in the world, but, if you've read the text, he hyphenates it all. In other words, he's very reluctant to, uh, to give in to this idea of, of splitting it up. Being hyphen in hyphen the hyphen world. As though it's one, un, one broadly interconnected, un, not exactly undifferentiated, but a term that captures everything that's going on outside, everything that's going on inside, but his being extremely cautious of using words like subject and object, or inner and outer, which he and uh, other thinkers in that uh, field regard as ideas that are added on to the primary experience of being in the world. Uh, Heidegger's teacher Husserl uh, used the expression uh, die Lebenswelt, the living world, that um, is disclosed once you suspend or bracket off all of the conceptual overlay. And so curiously, in, in, in Heidegger particularly, you don't find an analysis of consciousness, for example. That he's trying, as it were, to get to something more primal, than the idea of consciousness and its objects, or mind and matter, a subject-object, which is in a sense a kind of a somewhat convenient but rather crude uh, conceptual um, uh, superimposition on the primacy of our lived experience. And I feel that um, the Buddha's doing actually something quite similar. He's trying to find a language to articulate what it is um, that is revealed when, for example, 
we start just paying attention to our breath and then our bodily sensations and then the way those things feel and then the mental states that bubble up and pass and come and go and then what he calls uh, the, the Dhamma in other words everything that goes on and this is the, the development of the practice of mindfulness itself mindfulness starts with the breath extends to the body sensations in the body feelings mental states and then everything so this is a meditation that's not concerned at all with trying to arrive at some privileged um, <clears throat> ultimate uh, truth like emptiness or or the mind or the unconditioned or something but is opening itself up to the totality of what Heidegger would call being in the world to sensitize ourselves to train ourselves to um, to in a sense come back to this raw primacy of experience of life of what's happening the world and so on now what um, <clears throat> we're going to look at today is, I feel, um, the Buddha's most um, elaborate and maybe uh, precise account um, that begins to break up that experience of being in the world into a range of uh, specific elements, using those word elements with some caution, and the reason he does this, and this is, I think, the key point, is that he's not trying to, I think, give us a, an objective description of reality. But he's providing us with a framework, a set of useful ways of looking at our experience that are conducive to the uh, fulfillment and the realization of a way of life, the Eightfold Path if you wish. And this is what we'll come to as we go through the week. I think this is a very important point to bear in mind. I mean, a lot of what I'm going to be saying today will sound a bit like cognitive science, because that's the sort of language it, that's perhaps in our discourse most cl closest to this sort of analysis. But we must be careful to remember that this is being presented as a framework for a particular sort of practice something that we do. As I said yesterday, we're concerned with a praxis uh, of the Dharma rather than arriving at a set of beliefs uh, about who I am and what the world is. That's another, that's another strategy. So um, let's now first start with um, the term Nama Rupa. Um, Uh, again, bear in mind that Nama, Rupa, Vijnana, Vijnana is Pali for, for consciousness, um, are actually, that is the total term being used. So, experience, life, the world, what happens, can now be broken up or differentiated into Nama, Rupa, Vijnana, hyphenated, a la Heidegger. In Pali, they don't bother with hyphens, they just jam the words together. And you get long strings of syllables and, uh, and so on. <clears throat> now, Nama Rupa um, is a very puzzling idea. And it's one that I spent many years trying to figure out why this word, Nama Rupa, what it literally means. Nama means name. Again, it's like loka, location, nama, name. It's a cognate. In other words, it has a common root to the English word name. Rupa means form. Um, but again, here we have a problem. <clears throat> because rupa um, is the word the Buddha or the Buddhist texts use to describe what we see. Uh, what we see is basically uh, colors and shapes, colors and lines. Um, 
I see that light uh, bulb there, that light shade thing. It's got a certain color, it's got a certain delineation, a line uh, that, set, that, that is spherical. That's Rupa. But we don't have a word for that in English. Um, it's not matter, it's not form, because form is re really the shape. It also includes color. Um, what's interesting in the, in, these Buddhist, uh, in the Buddhist way of thinking is that it starts from sensory experience. So it takes, it, that, that, it, that, there isn't actually a word for matter, or at least not in the Pali Canon. Later philosophers in Buddhism develop those terms. But in the Canon you just have the words for what we actually experience. We experience colors and shapes through the eyes and that's called rupa. We experience sounds, we experience smells, and so on. Now what happens is that the word rupa for colors and shapes, what we see with the eyes, is then, ex is then extended to cover what we hear, what we smell, what we taste, and what we touch with the body. So this is pushing the usage of the word form into ways that really don't make sense in English and don't make much sense in Pali either. We just have to accept that a, a convention has been employed, that the word we use for what we see is also the word we use to cover everything that we know through the other senses as well, the other physical senses. Now there is no, we just don't have a word for that. So when you hear the word rupa, as in nama rupa, you have to remember that it covers everything that you see, hear, smell, taste, touch. All of that is called rupa, but even in the Pali, or the Sanskrit, rupa, strictly speaking, only refers to what you see. Perhaps because the eye is the kind of dominant sense, it got selected as describing everything else. Logically, he, he could have picked the word smell, and he could have called it Nama smell. Well, I forget what smell is in Pali. Uh, so it's, it's a convention. So don't get worked up about the word form. It's just shorthand, or it's code, for everything we know through the physical senses. Now that's fairly straightforward compared to what on earth we mean by Nama, name. <laughs> Now, um, the way in which, uh, for example, Morris Walsh and Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, translate Nama Rupa, they translate it as mentality hyphen materiality, which um, I don't think is very good, but it's difficult to find a better way of doing it. Materiality is what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch. Okay, why not? Mentality. Well, what's that got to do with name? Now, the um, <clears throat> solution to this problem as to what Nama Rupa means uh, only uh, came clear to me a couple of years ago when I was reading the Brudyaranaka Upanishad and um, discovered that Nama Rupa was a term already being used at the Buddha's time. The Buddha didn't invent the word Nama Rupa. You find it in the Upanishads. So in other words, um, at the, when the Buddha was giving these teachings, the people in the audience, especially those who were formerly Brahmin priests or, or educated, would have known what Nama Rupa meant. And so there's no need to somehow explain that. So to understand what Nama Rupa meant for the audience of the Buddha's time, we have to understand what it means in Indian classical tradition. And again, there's a very clear definition of this in the Brajaranaka Upanishad itself. Um, <clears throat> The text is talking about um, the process of the creation of the world from God. And it says, all this was once undifferentiated. 
In other words, before the world came into being, before anything was created, there was just pure, undifferentiated being, God, sometimes they call it consciousness. This is Brahman, Atman. And as in all um, theistic systems, you have to somehow explain how something that by its nature is one, undifferentiated, such it, anand, why and how it gives rise to its opposite. We have the same problem as how does God create the world? And then you get the story in Genesis, and every culture has its you know, creation myths. So here the, uh, the Upanishad is talking about, in a, in, a, in, a, in a very summarized way, the Brahmanic conception of creation. All this was once undifferentiated. It became differentiated by name and form. Nama, Rupa. There's no and in the Sanskrit or the Pali. It, got, it became differentiated by Nama, Rupa. So that one could say, he is so and so. And he has such and such a form. Therefore, at present also, all beings are differentiated by name and form, so that one can say, he is so-and-so, and has such-and-such such a form. Now, this of course makes sense, in a very obvious kind of way. Um, how do I recognize um, a friend, or anyone for that matter? I recognize them through their name. If somebody says, oh, Monica has arrived, and we know whom we're talking about, which Monica, then immediately I have a, a, a clear sense of that particular person, Monica. Or, if I'm walking down the street and I see um, a Monica in the distance, and I can see the way she walks, the way she's done her hair, um, maybe other quirks in her bodily movement, I can say, oh, there's Monica. Or likewise with myself. If a letter comes through the letterbox and it's got Stephen Batchelor written on it, I say, oh, that's me. <laughs> and I open it with a mix of anticipation and dread. It could be a glowing letter of praise or it could be a bill. But I know it's for me because I've seen my name on the envelope. Or if I'm walking through the streets and I pass a shiny shop window and I see a reflection of a balding middle-aged man in it, my, my first impression is, who's that? Oh, oh that's me. <laughs> so in other words, name and form, or name form, um, is the way in which classical Indian tradition refers to the phenomenal world, which is the world of differentiation, the world of differences, the world which the Buddha also calls experience, the all, life, etc. In other words, it's the world we live in. The world of, 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 of differentiated people and things and birds and flowers and plants and air conditioners and tape recorders and hats and zafus and all of that stuff. That's Namarupa. And that is just the standard way in which classical Indian culture understood that word. And remember that that is equivalent to the created world. And in, uh, in, 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 in the Brahmanic tradition, Nama Rupa is what we want to get rid of. It's that which has alienated us from God. Our obsession, our fascination with plurality, difference, complexity, differentiation. Um, curiously, actually, even the, the word is even used today. I once ran across, while I was in Delhi, um, a magazine on interior decoration called Nama Rupa. <laughs> In other words, how to make your place look really cool and great and, and hip. So Nama Rupa refers, therefore, to the differentiated world. Now, we've already talked about Rupa 
which has to do with what we, all the different things we see, all the different things we hear, all the different things we uh, smell, all the different things we taste, all the different things we touch. And again, through, as we, in a sense, become, uh, as we grow up from childhood, as we become more, let's say, cultivated, refined in our tastes and our perceptions and our specialized fields of interest, the world becomes more and more highly differentiated. And that is very much what the process of education is about, that the process of culture is about. It's about refining and heightening that sense of differentiation. I mean, I've seen this a lot. If, you go for a, if I go for a walk with a friend of mine who's a botanist, um, his uh, experience of the uh, flora is infinitely more refined than mine. I can distinguish between, you know, there's a white flower and a pink flower, and that's a daffodil and that's a daisy. But for him, it's, oh my God, there's a, and out comes a long Latin word. In other words, his appreciation of the natural world, at least of the botanical world, is highly enriched by differentiation, which is, of course, due to language and ideas and concepts. And I think that's true in all areas of our life. The, we live in Bordeaux. The wine people are, have got a highly differentiated sense of taste regarding certain wines. And they can tell you incredible things, which I don't notice. And I'm glad I don't notice them, because then I would stop enjoying the cheap wine that I buy normally. <laughs> <laughs> so it comes at a cost, this differentiation. <laughs> now, we have to just bear that in mind in the background, because the Buddhist texts don't tell us that. That's why the idea is so puzzling. Um, in fact, if you, what's happened in uh, the history of Buddhism which has forgotten about its Upanishadic origins, is that Nama Rupa is come simply to mean body and mind. Here we have mentality, materiality. I looked this up in Tsongkhapa recently, um, again, who's certainly one of the great Buddhist minds of the 14th century, and for him, Nama refers to um, uh, feeling, perception, inclination, and consciousness. In other words, the latter four khandas, or aggregates, and rupa refers to the first aggregate of rupa. It's just a way of carving up uh, matter and mind. Uh, and you'll find this pretty much everywhere, Theravada tradition too. But that, unfortunately, um, uh, <clears throat> obscures something that I think is incredibly important. And that is that nowhere in the Pali Canon, in the suttas, will you find the Buddha including consciousness in Nama. Nama has not, got nothing to do with consciousness. That's very important. That's why I've said Nama, Rupa, Vijnana. Three elements, not body-mind. In fact, the Buddha rarely bases his analysis of experience on that dualistic split between subject-object, body-mind. It's always more complex, the five bundles and then nama-rupa-vijnana. He seems almost deliberately to be avoiding any uh, dualism, any idea that there's two truths, for example, never used. Body-mind, rarely used. Instead, we have these rather more complex models. So what does the Buddha say about Nama Rupa? Well, fortunately, in the Sangyutta Nikaya again, 12.2, for those who are interested in looking it up. And what, monks, is Nama Rupa? Feeling, <clears throat> perception, intention, contact, attention. I don't worry, I'm going to go through this again. This is called Nama, name. And the four great elements and the forms derived from the four great elements, this is called rupa, form. Th thus this name and form together are called nama rupa. Okay, so he's very clear as to what he means. What he does is he takes this idea of a differentiated world and then he 
in a way, kind of carves it up into rupa, what we see, smell, hear, taste, touch, and then contact, and this is the sequence I think is most useful, doesn't match the sequence here. Contact, which Martina has been talking about already, feeling, perception, intention, and attention. Okay, let's go through that again. I'll, 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 I'll explain each one, at least in brief. You have rupa, in other words, what you see, hear, smell, taste, touch, contact, feeling, perception, intention, attention. That's nama rupa. Okay? Now, if you think about it, and again, I feel that this um, model is derived from basically experience. It's the way it seems that the Buddha and his followers uh, found it useful to differentiate this field of differentiated things, to somehow carve it up into blocks. But we have to be very careful here because the, no such lines exist in reality itself. In fact, what's being described is an unbroken continuum. And again, this is not difficult to understand. We can hear the river in the background, that sort of rushing noise. And we're also aware that we're hearing it, and that we're conscious of it, and that we perceive it. And we might have thoughts about it. But all of this, although it's uh, conceptually we can differentiate those things, in primary experience there is just me listening to the river with Heideggerian hyphens separating it. In other words, you can't, in experience, um, draw a line and say, well, that's where the river stops, the sound stops, and this is where my hearing of it begins. I mean, try it. No, seriously. It's actually a very... Or the same with your bottom on your cushion. You know, it's, it's evidently true, that my bottom is one thing and the zafu is another. Okay, and I'm sitting on the zafu. No one would deny that. But when I close my eyes and go into that sensation, my bottom and the cushion are blurring into each other. My bottom blurs into the zafu, and the zafu blurs into my bottom. I can't draw a line. No, seriously, I can't draw a line between the two. But conceptually, of course, we do. And we tend to think that our ideas and our, our words somehow map onto experiences. But it's not like that. And this is, I think, one of the things we begin to find through doing this kind of mindfulness meditation, is that what previously seemed clear-cut begins to actually appear to be more and more ambiguous. Um, it's very difficult to actually draw these neat lines that language users um, assume, for convenience and I think for very good reason, to exist. So Nama Rupa Vijnana is a, is, is, a, is a conceptual device to, to somehow give us a kind of a toehold or certain points of reference within a seamless, unbroken field which is at the same time highly differentiated. It sounds odd, but in fact, again, we can experience that. It's not just one, it's highly different, but at the same time, those differences can't actually be pinned down in experience. Or not very easily, at least. So what I think we have a description of is this, um, is this um, <clears throat> a spectrum from the sensory um, object, for lack of a better word, through to our subjective experience of it. But again, the Buddha, remember, is not using the word subject and object. In fact, the words subject and object do not even have Pali equivalents. It's just not the language with which was used. Subsequent Buddhist schools, 
philosophical schools started using that language. But the Buddha never uses it. So let's just, let's just give an example. We'll, we'll stick with the river. Um, <clears throat> I can hear the river because the sound, as we now know, as it were, comes at us in waves, sound waves, that impact our inner ear, our eardrum. And that point of impact is what the Buddhists call pasa, paso in Pali, which is translated usually as contact. But actually, it doesn't mean contact, it means touch. And the same thing is being done here as with the word rupa. Paso means contact, or uh, paso is translated as contact, and it's, you know, the term that you've heard Martin talk about. But once again, it's taking a term um, <clears throat> that has to do with physical contact. In other words, paso, uh, if, if I stroke my leg, and I, as I scratch my leg, uh, that's called paso, it's called tactile sensation or touch. And so even when I hear a sound or see an object, it's described as though it were like being touched, like fingers touching skin. But again, that's not actually going on when I hear something or smell something or taste something or see something, but the word paso touch is used and is translated as contact, which is quite good. Or impact you might want as well. You could choose that. <clears throat> and I also know fully well that if, if I were deaf <clears throat> or if I had headphones on, I wouldn't hear the river. It's only when my, I'm awake and my, <clears throat> my, my ear is, is working well, then there's the possibility of contact or touch and that touch then immediately, according to the Buddha's understanding, uh, triggers three things. Once we've been touched, we feel a certain way, we perceive something, and we are then primed to do something. Okay? <clears throat> we feel something, we perceive something, and then we're primed to do something. And they are feeling, perception, and intention. Feeling, perception, and intention. Again, we can't really draw a line, but as soon as a particular sense object impacts our, um, our one, one of our organs, it feels a certain way. Now this is this famous Buddhist word Vedana. Now feeling, although it's translated as feeling, it doesn't have quite the same sense as the word feeling does in English. In English we can say that love is a feeling and anger is a feeling um, and we tell our, and we want to get in touch with our feelings. But Vedana doesn't really mean that. Vedana means something like uh, the feeling tone or the emotional tone or the emotional coloring. Uh, some people translate it as the hedonic tone. In other words, experience always feels a certain way. It's somewhere locatable on a spectrum between ecstasy and agony and everything in between. That's Vedana. And a lot of the time, it's really in the middle of the band. It doesn't feel particularly nice, doesn't feel particularly unpleasant. It's what's called neutral. So the sound of the river, for example, is, you know, I doubt it's exciting us to great rapture, and I doubt it's making us feel depressed. It's just there. It feels it's okay. It's quite vaguely pleasant, I would say, because I like the sound of rivers. But at the point of Vedana, we move from 
simply a physical impact on a sense organ to what we would call a subjective experience. If I were to play you, let's say, a, one of Bartok's string quartets, I suspect some of you would say, oh great, I love Bartok. And we would sit there and, and get a lot of positive Vedana on the ecstasy end of the scale. But there could well be people in the room who can't stand Bartok. <laughs> and having to listen for 15 minutes to, to sort of slightly discordant violins um, would be a rather unpleasant experience. Uh, I have the same problem with uh, jazz, actually. I hate jazz. <laughs> I find it quite unlistenable too. It makes me irritated. But for other people, apparently, <laughs> it's enjoyable. <laughs> so in other words, Vedana um, is, 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 is where experience begins to take on a subjective, personal quality. And it has a lot to do, and it, I mean, inter I don't think you find this in the Pali Canon, but when I studied the Abhidhamma, uh, Vedana's understood to be the consequence of your previous actions, which makes sense actually. In other words, the way you've somehow, you know, because of your education or your upbringing or your preferences and choices and things you've developed, that in a way is what means that I like Bartok and you don't. In other words, it's, it's something to do with what I've done in the past. Um, I'm sure other elements are involved as well, but it's now this experience is becoming somehow my own experience. It's not just, I'm not just a machine receiving impressions, but I'm experiencing them as having a certain quality, a certain emotional uh, pleasure or pain or, new, or indifference. So that's Vedana. And as Martine probably mentioned, and I'm sure she will, and I'll also go into this. Vedana is very important here because Vedana um, is what then provokes our instinctive attraction aversion mechanisms. But we'll, go, we'll get into that tomorrow. But also when we hear something, when the sound impacts on our eardrum, we also know what it is. And this is perception. Perception is much trickier to understand because perception is so, um, is, so, uh, is so obvious to us that it's difficult to notice it. And in fact, one of the best ways I've found of illustrating perception is through reading um, studies, particularly by Oliver Sacks, of people who have been born blind and then at, the, at an adult age have their sight restored through surgery and open their eyes, which can now see, but they don't see what we see. I mean, the Hollywood fantasy would be that once they open their eyes, they see their children and their dog and their wife for the first time, and it's all terribly tearful and emotional. Well, unfortunately, it's not like that. It's actually bewildering and terrifying because all they see is a chaos of shapes and colours. And they don't know what the hell it means. And this, I think, is a very good example to show how perception is not something given but something we learn. Uh, and again, I mean, there's very simple examples we can give from our own experience. Um, if, um, if you were, let's say, Chinese and had never learned the Roman alphabet, um, you'd look at this piece of paper and it would make no sense at all. Likewise, if you don't know Chinese characters, and I showed you one, it might look pretty. You might want to hang it on a... You'd be happy to have it framed in a little um, you know, glass picture. Um, but you... I wouldn't have a clue what it meant. So again, reading is a good example of how we learn to make sense of uh, uh, visual shapes, in this case, to the point that when we, we pick up a book or look at a, the schedule, we don't have to think 
oh my god, that's a curly squiggle that goes to the left, and then it's followed by one with a bar. It's as though the meaning jumps off the page. And um, we can extend that to what we're experiencing and seeing and hearing and smelling right now. It's as though, you know, we hear the river. We don't hear a, a funny sound, which we then say, oh, that's the river. There are moments when we literally don't know what it is we're hearing. I had an experience once when we were doing a retreat in a chalet in Switzerland, and we keep, kept hearing this sound. And I figured it was either the radiator going on and off, or it was a sawmill in the valley. <laughs> I couldn't tell which one it was. Um, uh, so there are moments when you, you li literally can't, it could be, you can't get it or you misread it. But for the most part, we go through every day um, with not having to think about what it is that we're seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. We know. It's all, it makes sense to us. So perception is what renders our experience intelligible. What renders our experience intelligible. We know what things are. We recognize friends and so forth. When you get certain neurological disorders, Alzheimer's and so on, you lose that capacity sometimes. But for most of us, it seems so obvious, so natural, that it's difficult actually to think about it and to notice it. Now, it's important for the Buddha because a lot of the... Um, uh, problems that cause us dukkha are because we misperceive certain things. In other words, we take what is impermanent to be permanent, for example. So in other words, this is useful, not because it's giving us an accurate description of the world, but may, even if it does, and I think it's, it's borne out by neuroscience, but it's important for practical reasons. In other words, in Vipassana, we pay attention to how everything is impermanent and dukkha and anatta, which are things that we habitually misperceive. We don't notice those things. We don't perceive them. So we train ourselves, sometimes it seems boring and tedious, just to notice those things that we seem conditioned not to perceive. So that's why perception is important, but we'll come back to that. And then the next thing is that um, as soon as we have uh, experienced something, it's impacted the senses, like the river, we feel a certain way about it, we know what it is, that then puts us in a position to respond to it, to do something, and this is called Intention, chetana, intention. And intention is basically the movement of the mind to the object. In other words, we hear the sound of the river, um, we know it's a river, and perhaps we're very thirsty, we've been walking all day, we're parched. The sound of the river actually then begins to feel really rather nice, and we think, let's go to the river to get a drink. The mind that then prompts us to go to the river to get a drink is intention. Now, intention is everything <coughs> that arises spontaneously, every impulse that comes up without any you know, you know, deep reflection and then a choice being made, but just the spontaneous reaction. So it's all the reactivity and as well as all of the conscious, thought-through, responsive choice. And, uh, okay, I, uh, let's think this through carefully and let's make a decision. Okay, we'll go to the river. That's intention, as is you hear the river and you almost are off running down to the bank because you're so thirsty before you even notice that's what you're doing. Now, we don't have a word in English that covers all of that. That's the problem. Intention in English always sounds conscious, deliberate, whereas chetana can be spontaneous, 
instinctive, um, thought through, deliberate, everything within, the, within that, re, that gum, that, that, that spectrum. So you, we're maybe beginning to notice that these, these terms the Buddha's using, in a sense, are spectrum words. They cover a lot of stuff that we don't have specific words for in English. Or we, have one, we don't have one specific word. But what's being presented here is the idea that um, whenever we're experiencing something, we are then poised or on the verge of or engaged in a response. That experience is always responsive, it's not passive. And then the fifth of the nama factors is attention, manasikara, which is odd because the word literally means mental activity. Manas is mind, kara means to do. But it's universally understood as meaning the ability we have to focus on a particular object. Um, so that's why we translate it as attention. Uh, yonis or manasikara, skillful attention or wise attention, is often seen as a synonym for mindfulness. But it's the ability we have to, as it were, select and focus on an object or a task, which I think is necessary to get a basic model of... Um, Human, experience, human experience. Um, when I studied this in the Tibetan tradition, they also talk of these five nama factors, but they've forgotten that they're nama factors. They talk of them as omnipresent mental factors. That wherever there is consciousness, there is contact, feeling, perception, intention, attention. And it was only many years later when I started studying the Pali text, that I realized that the Buddha uses these terms in the context of Nama Rupa. But the interesting thing, and I think it's a useful insight, uh, in the um, Mahayana Abhidhamma, is that these five functions are necessary for us to be able to say, I'm conscious. In other words, they are the core, um, the primary components of consciousness, which brings us to consciousness. Consciousness being the integrated whole of being aware or knowing something that's going on. Again, very difficult to define. And maybe I should just say a little bit more about attention. Attention is important, again, not as a description of experience, but as a faculty that we can then develop. So in other words, a contact's important as a practice because it's what grounds us in our primary experience of being in the world. A lot of our meditation practice on the breath, on the body, on the sounds is all about, in a sense, grounding experience. Feeling's important because that's the basis on which we react, often negatively or compulsively. Perception is important because that's how we make sense of the world, but also how we uh, misperceive and distort thinking of something as permanent, which is in fact impermanent, etc. Intention is important because that's the basis of ethics and morality and choice, how we respond to what we experience. And attention is important because that's the basis of mindfulness, awareness, and concentration. In fact, the jhanas are basically the optimal degree to which attention can be developed. We'll come back, I'm going to say a little bit more about the jhanas this afternoon. But that's where it all comes from. So here we have a model, which I think by now should be more or less clear, um, but this afternoon I'm going to give a guided meditation on this, so we'll run through it again in meditation. We have, I hope now, a picture of Nama Rupa that's more or less clear. 
So, where, so let, now we need to look at what the Buddha talks about as consciousness. <clears throat> I think the, uh, uh, the first point to remember is that in the, in, in the uh, classical Brahmanic tradition, Nama Rupa is what emerges from the divine Atman or consciousness, if you wish. For the Buddha, it's the other way around. The Buddha recognizes that consciousness emerges out of Nama Rupa. Now, some of you will object and say, wait a minute, in the Twelve Links, it's the other way around. It is. But we can maybe address that question later if we have time. Um, well, first of all, let me read you a passage here from, again from the Sangyutta Nikaya where the Buddha says, with the arising of nutriment, there is the arising of form. Nutriment, I don't quite understand what that means, but I think it recognizes that all natural things like trees and plants and sounds and so on have, in a sense, been nourished by the, we, we would say, the evolution of life. With the arising of contact, there is the arising of feeling. With the arising of contact, there is the arising of perception. With the arising of contact, there is the arising of intention. And then he says, with the arising of name and form, together, there is the arising of consciousness. So consciousness, from that passage, and also from my Tibetan Abhidharma training, recognizes that consciousness is not something that's somehow lying behind the scenes, the kind of witness that's always there, but rather consciousness is what emerges out of this complex set of rupa, sensory objects, and nama, mental processes if you wish. When they come together, consciousness emerges. Now there's a very interesting text um, in the Majjhima Nikaya which is a dialogue between a man called Sati, the fisherman's son, who's a monk, he's a Buddhist monk. And the Buddha gets wind of the fact that Sati's teaching something that really doesn't fit with, his, uh, with the Buddha's Dharma at all. So he summons Sati, as a headmaster might summon a <coughs> miscreant schoolboy, and says, ah, and, <coughs> and um, he asks Sati what, he understands by the Dhamma. And Sati says, as I understand the Dhamma, it is this same consciousness that runs and wanders through the round of rebirths, not another. And then the Buddha says, well, what is that consciousness, Sati? And Sati replies, it's that which speaks and feels and experiences here and there as the result of good and bad actions. And the Buddha says, misguided man. <laughs> now again, this might not be the response you expect. Misguided man, he says, to whom have you ever known me teach the Dhamma like that? Misguided man, in many discourses have I not stated consciousness to arise upon conditions, since without a condition there is no origination of consciousness. Monks, consciousness is reckoned by the particular condition on which it arises. When consciousness arises dependent on the eye and forms, on ear and sounds, it's recognized as eye consciousness or ear consciousness. Just as a fire is reckoned by the particular conditions on which it burns, when fire depends on logs, it's called a log fire, when fire depends on grass, it's called a grass fire, so consciousness arises out of the conditions on which it occurs. Now, what Sati believes, and I suspect many of um, the monks who were formerly Brahmins would have believed, is that consciousness is not conditioned. Um, the text that I read out, many of you might have thought, oh, here's a text where the Buddha is saying there's no such thing as rebirth. That's actually not the case. What the Buddha is getting at is the idea that there is one consciousness, the same consciousness, that keeps going from life to life. 
And the Buddha is saying, when have I ever said that? Haven't I said that consciousness is constantly emerging out of conditions? There's no one thing called consciousness, unconditioned, uncontingent, that is a constant. That's the teaching of the Upanishads. That consciousness is Atma, unchanging, eternal, and so on. So consciousness, therefore, is an emergent property of, a, of, a, of an organism interacting with its environment. And this, again, is very close to a lot of findings in neuroscience. The consciousness is not just bubbling up out of the brain, but consciousness can only emerge when um, an organism, a living organism, with active senses, impacts an environment of sight, sound, smells, tastes, touches, people, etc. And I think we would also add now, Im inter impacts with language, symbols, culture, um, all of the elements of, of, of our human world, and consciousness is what emerges out of that interaction. So it's not reducible to the brain, it's not obviously reducible to the external world, it's what emerges through the interaction of the two. There's a book by a, a, a scientist called Alva Noe, called Out of Our Minds, which is a, a, a neuroscientific study of consciousness that advances this particular view. But it's more complicated than that. We're going to have to end in a minute. So I'll read you one more passage. Now this is a passage that only occurs twice in the canon. It occurs once in the Sangyutta, once in the Diganikaya. And this is the Buddha speaking. He says, Then, monks, it occurred to me, when what exists does consciousness come to be? By what is consciousness conditioned? Then, monks, through careful attention, yonis or manasikara, there took place in me a breakthrough by wisdom. When there is name and form, consciousness comes to be. Consciousness has name and form as its condition. It occurred to me, monks, when consciousness turns back, it does not go further back than name and form. Okay, now that's very interesting. In other words, when you look for the origins of consciousness, you won't find it um, anywhere other than in the conditions of name and form. In other words, what we see here, smell, taste, touch, contact, feeling, perception, intention, attention, when all of that happens, consciousness occurs. My Tibetan teacher compared it to, um, he compared consciousness to the hand and contact, feeling, perception, intention, attention to the fingers and the palm and the bones and the nerves and the blood and the skin. In other words, consciousness is the whole, W-H-O-L-E, of which Nama Rupa, or Nama particularly, are the parts. So consciousness does not exist as a separate thing, any more than the hand exists as something separate from fingers, bones, sinews, tissues, blood. You can't have a hand without those things. It's entirely you know, inconceivable. But at the same time, the hand is not equal to the sum of its parts, as they say in Gestalt psychology. The hand is somehow more. The hand can do things, like pick up this glass of water, that none of the bits can do. So the hand, the consciousness, is the, um, is, is the complex whole that has its own independent you know, you can recognize it as something distinctive, but it cannot exist independently of the parts that are necessary to form it. So that would be, I think, a good way of looking at the, um, at the relation between the two. Um, there's one other element which throws a bit of a spanner in this works, but let's look at it anyway. Um, well then, friend, I'll make up a simile for you, the Buddha's saying. Just as two sheaves of reeds, 
like in a, you know, when a farmer has reaped the harvest and he's gathered some wheat or barley and stacked them up against each other, just as two sheaves of reeds might stand leaning against each other, so too with name and form and as condition, consciousness comes to be, and with consciousness as condition, name and form come to be. <laughs> now this I think is very interesting. Uh, it's difficult too, but what it shows is that actually uh, we're talking of a relationship of interdependence. That name and form is actually kind of inconceivable or unintelligible without consciousness. I can only, as it were, even think or know of name and form because I am conscious of those things. But I cannot be conscious of those things without those things themselves. Somehow the two are interplaying one with the other. I heard an interview on the radio recently with a guy called Ray Kurzweil, who's on Australian national radio. And he says, you know, nowadays we can actually see neurons creating thoughts and we can see how thoughts then reinforce and strengthen the neural connections. Again, exactly the same idea of the two go hand in hand. We can't separate name and form and consciousness as two different things. We can't understand either without each other. It's like the chicken and the egg. You can't have one without the other. And that, I think, is the, probably the, uh, the clearest picture we have of the Buddha's understanding of what we call experience, life, what happens, the world, or nama, rupa, vijnana. So I'll stop there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.